0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Stratosphere Studio. I'm your host, Bill Little. We have uh, a couple of technical difficulties there, <coughs> as well as last of this flu cough. Um, hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know what it is. Somebody explained it to me. It's a USB. I don't touch anything, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But in any event, sorry about that. Um, So uh, we got some fun stuff to talk about. Actually got a little uh, science fiction stuff after quite a a long uh, dry spell. So that'd be nice since this is kind of the science fiction show. Uh, Found out in the comments while we were waiting, getting closer, um, that uh, apparently SpaceX has two launches tonight, which is phenomenal. That's capability, man. That's really capability. So <coughs> excuse me that's impressive I think one from California one from Florida or Texas I don't know which but got three launch got three launch platforms and um, when you use them all on the same night you've got get yourself a real space program there so um, yeah anyway I'm, I don't know what's going on with this USB thing I do know that this microphone uh, here is about to be um, smashed to pieces uh, I got it it was high, most highly ranked. Um, Uh, USB mic available and it's hot garbage it's got a volume switch in the back that just spins all you want to left and right and there's no way to tell what it's set at and because it's USB once you uh, plug it or or dump the stuff it just resets so that's nasty. I'm going to bring over the other mic from the um, uh, virtue signal table which is a real acoustic mic you know and all that stuff so anyway enough about this nonsense hope everybody's doing well uh, got some stuff to talk about tonight. Some fun stuff on uh, on the colonies. Did a little prep work for you guys, believe it or not. And um, I got a DK DKS one uh, thirty eight twenty seven. You asked me this before, uh, and 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 I, I don't know if I got the answer clear before. You said SLS Artemis work great. Please please comment. Uh, my my problem with the SLS is number one, they flew one mission on it, and when is the next one? two years from now, right? You can't get there from here if you're flying one mission every two years. And one of the reasons they're flying every two years is because I heard that they had to um, take parts off of the first one intentionally and move it on to Artemis 2. That alone is is enough of a warning, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that not only is the technology old and obsolete, it costs an absolute fortune, it's billions of dollars per launch, and ultimately it's using space shuttle engines, which are reusable engines, but they're chucking them into the ocean. It's just nothing about it that makes any sense at all to me. Nothing, and and it's over. It's overpriced. It's it's over budget. It's over delayed. It's 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 not impressive to me. Now they did go around the moon, and that's something. But I get the feeling Elon was ready to go around the moon in 2022. It's what he said. He's been pretty much as good as his word, but. Um, but he got held up by the faa and and nasa now oh, there's the all-time all-time awesome comment of the night i can tell already from s affindi so um do you like stuff that ralphie he's a ralph ralph wiggum is a philosopher he's a philosopher of our age i'm in danger he's just the best um so uh, you know i'm not trying to come down on you but it's just it's just I've, I've spent my entire life, the middle of my life anyway, watching NASA sit there and do nothing. Um, I saw the Apollo program firsthand, obviously, and I was like, my God, just things are going so fast. Then you get to the space shuttle, and you've got this expensive, overly complicated piece of hardware that was impressive, but um, and it just didn't look right. I think I mentioned this before. <coughs> I'm so sorry about this, cough guys. Um, you know, a lot of times, pilots say if it looks good, it'll probably fly good. I think there's something to that, but um, in any event, uh, it's um, the shuttle just didn't look right. Uh, so, um, so we did the shuttle program for twenty or thirty years, and we went round and round and round and round and round. We built the space station, so the shuttle had a place to go. We built the shuttle so, so that something could get to the space station, and and the space station's useless as a staging area for the solar system, so I'm not impressed. I, and NASA had me right up until Columbia. I gave them Challenger because no one really thought by that point that we were, you know, mortal. But after that, it's like, you know, after Challenger, they get Columbia, and like Challenger, it's a known, a known existing problem. Yeah, it probably won't blow up today. I'm done with them. That's not the way to go, and it's because it's it's become a standing army of managers and administrators. It's not engineers and test pilots anymore but uh spacex you know i'd love there I'd love for there to be competition for SpaceX. I expect someday there will be, but man alive there's just nobody in that category. nobody's even close. <coughs> oh my gosh I <laughs> mean okay anyway i got some I got some science fiction stuff after a long, dry spell um so uh, since that's what you're all here for is, is the science fiction? yes. Yes, yes, yes. So um, so uh, what What teed me off on this topic for tonight was uh, the guy who's my favorite uh, modeler uh, came out with a new model. And I went, uh, <laughs> so yes, colonies again. Yes. So I was um, thinking that might be um, a good thing to talk about. So I'm going to show you some pictures, but before we do, kind of want to set something up here so the reason that Lord of the Rings worked so well and um, rings of power didn't many reasons for this but one of the chief reasons was the elves had a completely different design aesthetic than the dwarves who had a completely design different design aesthetic from the humans especially in Gondor who was different from the orcs and so on, and you didn't have to have a map to know where you were, you could just look at the Rohan costumes, and I've you know, got the green and gold, I'm in horse country, and got the silver and blue, I'm in Gondor, and it was very, very clear, and it was very distinct, and that's brilliant. So um, what, what I have to try to do is I have to try to do something like that pretty much every chance I get. Um, You didn't have this problem, obviously, on Star Trek. I mean, on the original series, you've got the Enterprise, you've got the guys in the yellow, or I should say, gold, um, red, or blue velour, got their little, you know, um, bloused in boots, and those are the good guys. Klingons are swarthy, and they got mustaches, and they got this kind of metallic thing, and and their their their, you know, phasers look like. Dueling pistols, they're the bad guys. Same thing for amulets. They wear this kind of synthetic stuff and they're very kind of, you know, stoic. So you know who's who right away. And I have that problem now in terms of a universe that's populated with a number of different kinds of spaceships. How do you determine from looking at something whether it belongs to us or not? (coughs) To me... This comes down to two things. First of all, the technology has to match. Uh, the fun thing about the colonies is it's kind of in a set in, a, in an era of transition where they're starting to come up with this uh, magnetic field thing that's actually a pretty decent form of artificial gravity. And when you combine that with fundamental hull streamlining so that you can dip into a gas giant atmosphere and refuel for free, now you've got reasons for ships to look different than, say, the Aurora or, you know, Discovery or something like that. So the amount of streamlining it has determines whether it can dip into an atmosphere and how deep it can go But but mainly It's like, it's more like a design ethos now U.S. military hardware is obviously contracted out to a bunch of different people General Dynamics makes the F-16 and um, uh, McDonald um, makes the uh, the F-15 and so on Lockheed makes the F-22, F-35 <coughs> But they look they look like American planes. They're painted like American planes. And when you see a US Air Force or Navy airplane, it looks like it's an American plane. Conversely, if you look at a Soviet plane, or a Russian plane, rather, or you look at a Chinese plane, they also have a distinct look. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a distinct look. So I found a guy who's, um, and this is kind of one of the advantages to not being able to have kind of a front budget where I can say, make me go and bring me the head of a pig. Um, sometimes when you're dependent on somebody else's work, you have to find a way to square it. If you are going to use this, you want to use this, not exactly what you wanted, but so that gets your mind thinking. I think we might have talked about this before on role-playing games. When you, uh, in Traveler, they would say you roll a character, and when you're playing a desktop role-playing game, you want high scores on everything, because that means you'll succeed at everything. So you want straight 10s, or 20s, or 12s, or whatever. But when they were doing that for Traveler, the, the authors of that particular role-playing game said, listen, trust the dice. If you have a guy who's got an education of, of 20 and an intellect of four, that'll tell you a story. Likewise, if you've got a guy who's got an intellect of of um, 20 and an education of four, that'll tell you another story. If a guy's got a lot of stamina but very little strength, that's that's how you can find out what's unique about this person. I thought, okay, <coughs> I'm so sorry, guys, this is just driving me nuts. It's just a tickles, you know, it's just, I had bronchitis when I was a kid, and anytime I get a little bit of a flu or a cold, it's cough stays with really me for a while. So anyway, um, I, need, I need things to look like they're ours, and then I need things to look like they're theirs. So tonight I want to talk about the things that look like they're ours. We've got this um, one designer out there, I believe he's a Russian guy, but um, he's going to be the guy who's designing the American, which become the Aurora ships, right? They're, they're going to be the good guy ships. And the the entire arc of the story is these colonies are breaking away from, from Earth and breaking away from uh, you know, what used to be America. And so I've got the same company like McDonnell, Douglas, or Lockheed, built ships for the United States Space Force, and now they're building ships for Aurora, the Aurora Federation, or the Aurora Republic, whatever the case may be. And and so they've got to look like they're the same family, but they also have to look significantly upgraded, right? So, um, so that's uh, where we're going to go today. So um, let's take a look at some of the ships from this guy, uh, his name, after all this, wouldn't you? Uh, here we he go. Um, he is on uh, CG Trader. I think his name on there is Executor. Anyway, he's he's got his own art staging page, and I'll try to link to it if I can remember to do that. Um, but here we go. All right. Uh, thank you, Ravensai. Uh Let's see if I can figure this out. So, uh, the company, the fictional company that I came up with, is is Regan Dynamics. I happen to know an engineer named uh, Brent Regan who's the smartest guy I ever met in my life and who builds his own airplanes and stuff. So I thought Regan Dynamics would be awesome. So we're going to see Regan Dynamics ships. They'll be the good guy ships. And a couple of other comments, just real quick. Um, This is a personal choice for me. I suspect every single person in this audience would make the same choice. But this came out of the Cold War, and and it just seems like the American way to go. If you've got an awful lot of resources, you can go with quantity. If you have limited resources in terms of personnel or whatever, you want to go with quality. So linking this whole thing back to RK, everybody drink now. You could, take a, you could consider the, the Soviet um, attitude towards their military as kind of R-based. Build as many of these cheap little rabbits as you can. Don't spend too much money on any of them. You don't have to train the guys particularly well. Just overwhelm them. Just flood them. That's what Soviet military doctrine has been ever since World War II, certainly. And throughout the Cold War, they had four or five times as many tanks and airplanes as we did in, in the U.S. and NATO. <coughs> I'm glad you said Boyd class, there, Steve Young. I'm going to get to that. I have a little subject on that. So that meant that, that Western stuff had to be significantly better than the then the Soviet stuff had to be able to uh, an F-15 had to be able to not just shoot down a Russian jet, had to shoot down five or six or eight Russian jets to stay in, to stay in the fight. Right. Same thing for the M one tank and and the the T-72s and so on. So what I'm going to show you is a Navy that's going to be limited in terms of its budget and its manufacturing capabilities. So therefore it's going all in on the tech. It's going all in on the state of the art tech. That's, that's, My personal ideal If I was given a choice just from an aesthetic Or just any kind of choice If somebody said you can have a Small number of high quality assets Or a large number of poor quality assets I'd go with A the first time That doesn't always win by the way (coughs) Um Cleverfish for $5 says, do you have any thoughts on MGTOW, men going their own way, philosophy refusing to have anything to do with women and how this will affect society? I do, but I'm going to save that for Stratosphere Lounge because that's a political question, and um, we try to, I know we've crossed the streams more than I would have liked, but this is kind of science fiction night, so I'll tell you what, Cleverfish, if you can bring that back to me on Thursday and bold it, you don't have to pay for another uh, Super Chat, um, I, will, I will get to that uh, on Thursday because I have a lot to say about that actually. All right, here we go, ready? So we're gonna look at the Regan Dynamics ships. So Regan Dynamics built ships for the United States back in the United States of 200 years from now is not the United States of today. That's one of the things we have to capture is, um, is that sense of grief, that's the word. It's not just regret or uncertainty, that sense of grief that must have, that must have overwhelmed so many of the American founding fathers. When they had to, when they had to open fire on redcoats under a British flag—that was their flag. We, we never, ever seem to get that right. We never get that. Um, so, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything about the revolution that, that covered what they must have been feeling, which is, I don't want to shoot British soldiers up. to I was one. That's a, that's a tough choice, but we're going to do it. So. Regan Dynamics built ships for the United States, and now uh, the head of Regan Dynamics is one of the founding fathers. He's one of the guys taking taking us away from all of this, you know, decline and 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 decay back on Earth. And he's one of the one of the guys that's pulling for the economy. So he's bringing his company with him, and now he has to he gets a chance to start with pretty much a clean sheet. So. Hopefully that's enough of setting the stage. What I'm basically trying to say is, I want these Regan ships to look like they're designed by the same company, but I want there to be a significant difference between the stuff that they did back in the day for the for for uh, the Earth-based thing versus the new stuff that they're working on for uh, the colonial government. So, with that said, here we go. Uh, so here's the work of the guy on on um, on CG Trader. It's all Everything you're about to see are models of his own uh, design and none of them are textured, which really hurts. Now, the one on the bottom, you've seen me playing with a little bit. I was trying to texture that thing. But these this are sort a of version of his um, exploration ships. So let's see what else this guy's got and see if we can get ourselves a sense of, of where his design eye is. Oops, that's not what I wanted. Let's try this. Went the wrong way. I know the contrast is a little poor here. But these are basically just three designs. Now, you would say, well, they sure do look awful slick for a spaceship. You know, we're trying to be realistic about this. But the way I'm able to justify this is, you know, if you can get your gasoline for free, it's probably worth building some streamlining if only to save the time, if not the money. So because some ships have streamlining and some don't, the streamlined ones can do wilderness refueling. They just... Basically set themselves up in an elliptical orbit that dips them into the um, into a gas giant's atmosphere. They scoop up hydrogen and so on. Yes, they look a lot like too much like Star Wars, but they're but they are along the same design lines, and and Star Wars has lots of little greebles on everything, and these are gonna be more like panels, so I'm gonna have to find a way to make this explanation a little bit better. But in any event, in any event, let's look at some more of these things from this guy. I like that a lot. Um, it reminds me an awful lot of the, um, of the freighters in, uh, Star Citizen. I, I don't know whether he got the idea from them, or I'm sure he did, but, um, but I just, I just think that's simple and cool, and I love those external cargo things, and, um, and if he ditches his cargo, he could, um, he could, uh, you know, pick up a little fuel. Plus, it's a small ship. You can usually tell the size of these things from the, the windows, cockpit windows. That's a cool-looking ship, I think. Um... He's got uh, transports. This is the hardest one to see because the contrast is very, very poor. But it's got that kind of rounded kind of look. It's kind of you know a bit like the uh, uh, the rebel ships. I don't really like it. But um, I mean, I don't I don't like that that it's that similar. This thing, I suppose, you could probably bring this thing into an atmosphere, just flip it upside down, kind of surf the atmosphere a little bit. But this is more of a of a transport, and he's got something here, which is actually kind of a. A liner Um, that's a cool-looking vessel I know it looks like a cruise ship and I have to find a way to make that okay because I just think that is a a wickedly cool-looking piece of piece of work but let's get down to the battleships now so um, we have uh, as I said we've got the old stuff and we've got the new stuff so um, let's see what we can do here hang on a second all right, so up next, hey, there you go. That's the um, same designer. That's our exploration ship. It looks to me like an unarmed ship. That's the uh, untextured Armstrong. So Regan Dynamics is building these exploration ships. They're, they're, they don't go down the, the um, Stargate channels. They're designed to do very high speed, virtually all of that space is, is fueled. And, um, and it has to be able to refuel at the destination. That's a requirement. So you've got that light, nice long boom at the bottom there, and it's just a really cool-looking exploration ship. It doesn't look terribly mean or heavily armed to me, and I like it. I just think it looks frickin' fantastic, especially when you start walking down the length of this thing and you find out most of all of this is just, you know, tankage. Because these guys... Um, uh, Air Techie says, I thought I was not doing artificial G. I'm not doing artificial G, but I am doing magnetic field manipulation to simulate G. So... Um, so this thing, I think, is just wicked. I love this ship. Love it. And so now that the stuff you're going to see are going to be warships that come from the same design studio as as this, as this one. So let's see what's next. <coughs> so I want the old stuff, the, the first generation stuff, to be clunkier. You know, I want it to look um, older. I want it to look uh, an awful lot less uh, stealthy. We'll get to stealth in a minute. I'm going to talk about stealth a lot uh, on this thing tonight. Um, and, and so all of that is there. So this is kind of the, um, this would be sort of the old version of the cruiser. And then, um, this would be what's already flying with the, you know, with the existing earth forces. So what would Regan Dynamics do if they had a a blank sheet of paper and a decent sized paycheck? If they were, this design might be 40, 50 years old, maybe even older. What would Regan do if they were going to go with a much more, um, low signature, uh, New version of a cruiser. I think the one I would pick for the new cruiser. This is the old cruiser. The new cruiser would be uh, would be this one, which looks like it means business to me, boy. Uh, I love that ship design. I love it, and I'm gonna gonna cover it with um, as much radar absorbing stuff and so on that as I can get. But that thing looks like it means business. I think that thing looks like it's really, really mean business. R.D. Tech says stealth does not work in space. Don't get ahead of me, man. I'm not done yet. Trust me on this. Um, okay, so that's that's just cool looking. And then ultimately, look, when it's all said and done, that's what you want, right? You just want something cool looking. So now we'll go to what the old uh, revenue cutter. Uh, it's a really odd design. I keep thinking of it as shop back, but because it's so weird, I like it. So this would be kind of the revenue cutter that our main naval character starts off in. He's He's, um, in the very first time we see him, he's basically still working for the U.S. uh, Space Force, and he is basically flying this revenue. It's just essentially a cutter, right? It's a Corvette, and and it's taking a look at at this asteroid, and there's all these Chinese mining ships that are basically, you know, poaching uh, other people's stuff. And so this guy arrives in this thing and manages to drive one of them off, and one of them one of them shoots at him. I mean, it does look like a dirt devil, but it's different and it's and it's weird. And it and it's kind of cool too. So um, it reminds me actually of the uh, F-23. No, the F-30, the other one, the, the one that lost to the F-35. Um, but it's it looks older, but it looks kinda cool. So this is going to this whole class of ships, this is an old class of ships, remember. Um, and uh, and it's going to be replaced with an experimental ship that's designed by John Boyd. He's going to design a test bed. It's a it, it's a it's a one-off experimental design for stealth in space. Hang on to your underwear before you get all worked up. Uh, and so he needs a small. It becomes a small proof of concept thing, and he's going to call that the Nautilus. So. This would be the Nautilus. It's very small. It's very in line. Those engines can actually be pulled back in. There's all kinds of heat deflectors on the on the back end of the engine. I will get to that. Um, but but this thing is able to get close enough to fire, and uh, it has no essentially no defensive capabilities at all. So this becomes very much like a World War II submarine, not a modern nuclear submarine. But I like it. I think it looks cool, and I think it looks, you know, serious and experimental, and 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 not particularly good looking. Now, this next one is the one I'm a little most—I uh, don't want to say ashamed of. It's just this this final one is um, is pretty. I kept trying to think of a word for it. And the only word I can come up with is baroque. So this would be one of the old style. U.S. Space Force battleships. I'm going to get to this terminology in a minute. You'll get the idea. Okay? So this is this is the old one. Hang on now, because this thing is, is a little freaking weird. So that is basically just a gigantic, horrendous, moving gun platform. Um, it, it, it's got the radar signature of, of, uh, of, you know, there's no way to... Describe what, what that radar signature is because there is no stealth in space, so it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. You don't need you don't need stealth in space. You don't need you don't need something that's low radar reflective if you don't need stealth in space. And we're getting to this now, so it's like I said. The only thing I can think of is baroque. Uh, Greg, we're talking about um, talking about my um, uh, science fiction series called The Colonies that I've been talking about on this show and Stratosphere Lounge show for years now. So this is what the this is what the old the old US forces earth-based forces has been their functioning warship forever. This is this is their old battleship. Uh, and then here comes what Regan Dynamics has decided to do for their for their heavy for their for their big gun platforms. <laughs> I think that's just so freaking cool. The whole thing's going to be just a spinal mount. There's just going to be a gigantic, enormous particle accelerator down the middle of it. And it's just going to its just going to punch a hole in everything. Oh, no. Dave Big Booty says that um, Diamond of Diamond and Silk passed away. I'm sorry to hear that. Those of you who were in for the sci-fi don't know who that is, but there are a couple of great women... Uh, who did some fantastic commentary, and one of them has apparently died. That that makes me sad. I'll have to deal with that a little bit later. Right now, um, so that that thing just looks wicked, right? It's it's just it's just mean, and it doesn't look too Star Star Warsy because it's not covered with greebles. Star Wars ships are all covered in greebles. I could pick you a number of Star Wars ships that would scream Star Wars. These don't. They don't look like Star Trek ships. They don't look like uh, uh, expand ships. Um, once I go to the trouble of explaining how the magnetic um, artificial gravity works, that'll cover that. And now on to the entire uh, topic of, of discussion here in terms of this. So that's that's the artistic problem, right? Is the look what What's the look? How How do I make something look like number one? They're all the same. Player, right? They're all the same team. Number two, how do I make sure that that the guys who are rooting for have the cool stuff? That's really ultimately what it's all about. We want our guys to have the cool stuff um, by finding different designers, and I've already done this. I'll try to have these for come up with entirely different design ethics. And so I've got a couple of of three D modelers who um, who. Uh, who will be doing like the Chinese ships, and there'll be guys that do the Russian ships. One guy, so that they all have a different kind of a feel to them. You should be able to just glance at them and see, okay, that's probably one of theirs. And then, the, you know, the 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 freighters are more or less um, ubiquitous. Although even then, I've got uh, I've got a line called um, <coughs> called Sparta. Um, thank you, Sacred Order of Knightly Valor says the designs look great upside down, which is fine because there's no right side up. But yes. So I've got Sparta, which is just nuts and bolts, no, no um, amenities, nothing. And I have to say I owe a big, a big uh, debt of thanks to Star Citizen for this because Star Citizen, this is something that they do really extraordinarily well. Um, Star Citizen has a number of different companies uh, that are building ships, and all of the ships that are made by MISC or made by uh, Origin or Aegis they're all they all look like origin ships. They all look like this, this, they all look like Drake ships. So that that's what really got me into the idea of having something that looks like it like it belongs, right? So there it is. Okay, so now, now to the question of uh, stealth in space. So we've talked about this a little before, but I'm gonna talk about it more from a screen pointer screenwriter point of view. Um so uh, and MBS Spike says, "Why can't you have a mass shaft the length of the beam spinning partial gravity?" First of all, this is something that not many people realize. I got laughed out of the room at this when I took this up to my um, friends at X Corp. How many times have you seen this? You've got a you've got a spaceship flying through space, and it's got either it's got either rotating centrifuge or rotating hab arms. I've seen it a thousand times. It's not possible. And and I know this is hard to follow because I've been trying to get this straight in my head many times, but I spoke to the engineers about this. And if you have the center core and this just one going around, it's gonna pull the core, it's gonna pull the core with it. You say, oh no, no, I've got I've got it counter-rotating. Yes, you've got it counter-rotating, but it's no such thing as a as a frictionless bearing. So even though you've got counter-rotation built into it, the, the drag on the bearing is going to pull the, the core around. Counter rotating things you can do, but a single rotating thing, you cannot. And that was a, a wake-up uh, call for me. So and besides, there's a lot of things about about s- centrifugal gravity. You, the first thing is you want it as far away from the axis as possible. If you get it so close to the axis, there's a huge gravity gradient between where your head is, which is at low gravity, and your feet, which is at high gravity. If everything's a mile away, it's more or less uniform at that point. So um, yeah, I'm not going to do the thrust generated thing either because uh, I just I just it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. I saw it in the expanse. They they run everything up to um, to the midway point, then they flip it over and then they slow it down. So that's what they did in order to have gravity in the expanse. But that's like saying I'm going to drive from here to uh, to Dallas, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna take my car all the way up so that at the moment, it's halfway there, is at it's at 70 miles an hour, and the second I hit 70 miles an hour, we're going to start slowing down again. Um, it, it, makes, it makes a species of sense if your goal is to provide constant gravity, but if you're assuming that you want to get from A to B, then what you want to do is you want to get up to your maximum speed as quickly as possible. You want to gun it on the ramp, get it up to 70, and then you just do the trip at 70. point thing that's that's saying that the that the the ship is carrying enough fuel so that it is going at full burn for name a place right you're on full burn to the moon you're on full burn to, to Pluto it, it just doesn't make sense to me put in enough enough uh, Delta V so you can get up to your to your to the top speed limited by your fuel and then hold on to enough fuel to slow down and you do that again on, on high end on the other end at least for military ships that makes sense to me so here we go once again into the into the scalding waters of stealth in space. there is no stealth in space <coughs> I've gotten into this um, I have gotten into this so deeply you have no idea. Uh, so the argument is a, is a very sound argument. The space is, is really cold and using existing technology we're able to determine something that's 20, 30 degrees Kelvin fairly easily. If you lit up a fusion drive, you could see that from Alpha Centauri to here. Um, And uh, and so, yes, it is, for all intents and purposes, impossible because of the temperature. And so when people think that, but I'm not done yet. When people think that space combat's going to be like submarines, oh we're stealth, you know we're going to sneak in, we're going to it's not a question of radar reflectivity, it's a question of temperature. If you got people on board that thing, you got to be at several hundred Kelvin. And and that means it doesn't matter what your sh- what your radiation shielding is if you if you if you completely thermally isolate the hull, what do you do with that waste heat? Everybody inside cooks, right? They just they just they just burn. So The argument is very, very compelling that there's no way to do stealth in space. And I buy all of that, except that I've studied this thing for a long time. And don't worry, Charlie, I've got an angle. Um, Here's here's the thing. Um, In order to pull this off, there are three parameters that you have to do. The first one is, you've got to get the ship as cold as possible. I'll get to that in a second. The second thing is you cannot do a great deal of maneuvering, if any, not only because the the plume is going to light up. You could probably do cold gas kind of thing. But you can't really change an awful lot of delta v, so there's that problem. And the th- final thing, and this, 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 this is something I've never heard anybody else talk about ever. When you hear people say, there's no such thing as stealth in space. Okay, right, why? Because the ship is going to be 20, 30, 40 degrees Kelvin anyway, and, and so on and so forth, right? Okay, I'm with you. Well, that means you'd be able to detect it right away. Yes, but if the solar system were completely empty except for planets, you'd have a good point. But have you ever seen what the solar system looks like in terms of the total number of millions of asteroids out there? It's just a—it's just a gigantic ball of fur, right? And those asteroids. This is the part that got me—got me through the hump. The asteroids are not at um, uh, absolute zero or close to it. The surface of even cold asteroids is significantly warmer. Triton is the coldest moon in the solar system. Let's just real quick see what uh, what that surface temperature is. it's negative 391 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, what is it in Kelvin? OK, so Triton is is probably the coldest body in the solar system. It's certainly one of them. And Triton is at 38 degrees Kelvin. Most of the asteroids are somewhere around 38 degrees Kelvin. Um, heat management is, is Heat management is part of it, but but you can't just plain insulate the thing because you gotta you gotta dump waste heat. You have to dump waste heat anyway, right? So you got a got a real specific set of circumstances where this can work, and that's what I like about this particular aspect of it. It's not a magical cure all. It's just simply if you really think this is how this is how Boyd is going to sell it. So let me explain to you the the technology, and then I'll um, then I'll explain that. Wouldn't Pluto be colder? You would think so, but I don't think it is. There's something about Triton. Let's find out what Pluto is. Yep, I was right. Pluto is 44 Kelvin. Okay, so it turns out that the solar system consists of millions and millions and millions and millions of specks that are in motion that are at about 40 Kelvin, somewhere in that general vicinity, right? And so when people say there's no stealth in space, they're right. It's not that you can't detect the ship. The question is, can you detect it out of the millions of other targets? That's the point. That's the point, you see. Um, So now the question is, how can you do this technologically? If you put the crew inside a very small space and you insulate it with liquid hydrogen, I forget the exact numbers, you can get it down to, I, these numbers, are, I had them, I don't have them now, so don't hold me to them, but you can get it down to somewhere around 30, 40 Kelvin. However, if you put the front of the ship and you and you refrigerate the side that is the aspect, this is a single aspect operation, you can only do this if you're pointing right at the enemy, if you point the nose directly at the enemy and up front you have liquid um, helium, you can get down to about 5 Kelvin. So, you can make a ship from one angle, essentially not not completely disappear, but certainly dim enough so that it's lost in the clutter of the of the detritus of the solar system, and that's literally billions of rocks out there now, right? So um, now, infidel 42 says yes, but that 40 degree Kelvin blob is on an intercept course. Exactly. So now we get to where it's interesting dramatically. You see. Look, nobody knows what's going to happen, right? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay as true to this as possible, build as much physics into it as I can, but ultimately when when it's all said and done, what I want is something cool and interesting. So in The Expanse, they basically say, oh, we're going to just put this magic material on these asteroids and, and they'll fly right past the Earth's defenses. Okay, fine. You know, I have no problem with The Expanse other than the fact that how much they try to brag about how scientifically accurate they were. So what's cool about this is, is that, just like the first submarines, just like especially like the World War I, World War II subs, you can actually pull off a sneak attack under an extraordinarily limited set of circumstances. The submarine, for example, World War II sub, just take a U-boat or an American uh, Gatto-class fleet sub, right, that vessel is extraordinarily fragile. You put one round from a destroyer into it and it's going down, right? So it's, it's it's very fragile. It's slow. Underwater, it's slow. So it cannot catch a target if it's underwater. The only way that it can catch a target if it's found one, the only way a U-boat can launch a successful attack is from the front. So if it's lucky enough so that a, a, a convoy starts steaming towards him, then he's in a good position. Many times they would detect a convoy, and then they'd go out of, at nighttime especially, they'd go way out to the limit of visual range, surface the boat, stay low. Race ahead on the surface. The sub on the surface is faster than most transport ships, although it's not faster than warships. So you would basically, if you see a guy and you don't have a good firing solution, you wait till nighttime, you come up to the surface, you run fast, 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 get way ahead of them, turn in towards them, and put yourself where you expect they're going to be, then submerge the boat and wait for them to walk into into your sights. That's why zigzagging was so important. Because, because... You could, you could significantly ruin a submarine's targeting solution if you're not where he expects you to be when he submerges. So that severely limits a submarine. What it essentially does, guys, is it takes it takes stealth in space from behaving like a nuclear submarine like it does in The Expanse. Oh, we're stealthy, we're under the water, we can do whatever we want to, you know, blast off It it removes removes the universality of the advantage that a nuclear sub has and restores the balance between stealth and capability because a submarine is an extremely low capability vessel if you look at it just as a vessel. It's slower than a Liberty ship. It's slower underwater, seven knots maybe, eight. Underwater, it's slower than the slowest of merchant ships and it can't stay underwater for very long. So when you get all of this stuff together, what you find is you can make a case for a stealth ship in the colonies to be a real thing so long as it obeys a very specific set of engagement rules. So um, sacred Order of Night says, do you know the theory of elemental waves, evaporates, quantums, contradictions. Link in chat, I did not know that, I'll look for it. So here's how it would work. So. You got this guy and I know it's all Navy or whatever it is what it is I'm just trying to get the names in there so you got this guy who's the captain of this uh, shop back, right he's 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 a young guy he's the captain of a shop back, and he's just doing revenue cutter duties and stuff and he's also one of these his name is, is John Boyd and he's one of these uh, warrior poets and he's been doing all the math on his own time and he's been working all this stuff out He's gotten with some engineers and a bunch of other things, and he goes to make a pitch to, essentially, the founding fathers of the colonies. And he's talking to the military of the founding of the colonies, and he says, "I need, uh, you know, I, I need a, I need a brief with the, with the top general, the top admiral, or whatever." Well, well. well <laughs> he pulls some strings he gets a couple of people on his side the way boyd did he goes in and he does the yes john boyd like the mad major he needs he needs to be a household name i am a huge huge john boyd fan and um and i want to tell his story as best as i can um so so boyd gets a chance to do a brief in front of these guys and and he and he, and he starts the brief by saying uh, uh thank you very much gentlemen um, all right let's begin Everybody knows that there's no such thing as stealth in space. Uh, this is a proposal for stealth in space. And you get all these groans, you know, and the guy's just ready to chuck them out right now. And all of the staff guys who are kissing the general, the admiral's butt. Well, you know, this, we're going to go through this again. We're going to go through this again, 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 again. And the guy's just going to say, this, 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 and this. I've run these numbers and... Uh, and they work. And he says something, this is an art, this is a writing problem, he says something that gets the the admiral's attention because John Boyd gave them, I, I, I mentioned this in the Cold War series, John Boyd, yep same Boyd uh, Sad Wings. same Boyd uh, did the OODA loop, he did um, uh, energy maneuverability theory and he did a briefing at the Pentagon and I say in um, I say in one of the Cold War scripts that it is the most. It was the briefing that won the Cold War. Boyd got a chance to give his energy maneuverability briefing to a top Air Force Admiral. uh, Sorry, Air Force General, top guy. He's got all these slides. He's got um, he's got uh, Raspberry there to help him. He's got all this. He's gonna you know he's gonna just lay this thing out. It's a six-hour brief. He gets to Washington. They both fly a couple of F-100s up there, which I thought was cool. They're ready to give the brief, and as they're walking into the briefing room, the, the general's aide said, you'll have, you'll have 15 minutes with the general. And Boyd says, it's a, a six-hour brief. You have 15 minutes with the general. So all right, so Boyd's cool under pressure. So he basically starts the brief. He said, uh, gentlemen, uh, please turn your attention to these slides. Uh, these slides show uh, various altitudes and air speeds for various aircraft in our inventory and also various aircraft in the Soviet inventory. Our numbers are in blue, the Soviet numbers are in red. You'll see them compared one to one, and everything that you see in red is where the Soviet aircraft is better performing than the uh, American aircraft. First slide, please. And he shows, you know, the the MiG-21 against the F-4. Then he shows the MiG-17 against the F-4. Then he shows, you know, he shows this against the F-105. And all of these slides are almost completely sea of red. Little tiny little windows where it's blue, but mostly, it's all red. And, um, and Boyd basically says, uh, The conclusion, sir, based on the data that we have from our own aircraft and enemy aircraft, is that we are significantly outclassed technologically by the Soviet Union in our engagement in Vietnam and around the rest of the world. Uh, are there any questions? He does this in 10, 15 minutes. Says, what do you mean, are there any questions, Major? said, What? Well, Boyd says, Well, General, I was given 15 minutes for the briefing. The time has expired. And I was wondering if anybody had any questions. And then the general turns to his colonel and says, cancel all of my appointments for the rest of the day. And that's the most important briefing. That's the briefing that won the Cold War because you can't win the battlefield unless you have air supremacy. Overwhelming advantage in in the air. You cannot operate on the ground without the air. And you cannot have air supremacy, especially against a numerically superior opponent, unless your aircraft are significantly better killers than the enemy fighter aircraft are. So, oh, you beat me to it, Dave Big Booty. So this is the era when John McNamara is basically deciding that um, what America needs is uh, is one jet that'll do everything. It'll be the Air Force jet, the Marines jet, it'll be the Navy jet, and it'll be a fighter and a bomber, and it'll be a transport, it'll be everything. It was the F-111 swing-wing flying bus. Boyd met this engineer who built the thing down in, um, in Florida at the test range down there. And he basically said, you the guy who designed the F-111." He said, "Yep." He said, "Well, you've designed this piece of crap." And he didn't say crap. He said, "It's too heavy. It's too slow. It's got the turning radius of a bus. It takes three states to turn that thing in. That swing wing adds all of this weight. You know, it's you you, you could have cut could have cut 10,000 pounds off of this vehicle. You can't see from behind. You can't see anything. Doesn't have a gun. He's just bam, 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 bam. And that engineer, to his undying credit, General Dynamics engineer, said, "All right, sit down, John. And they got out a napkin and they." Decided what the ideal fighter airplane would be if they had it to themselves. And they built the F 15. Although Boyd didn't like the F 15 as much because he still thought it was too big and too heavy. He wanted a rapier. And what he designed was the F 16. And uh, when that aircraft was built, it was the original specifications for the F 15 Eagle were uh, not a pound for air to ground, right? This is an air superiority fighter. So the, F- the F-15C is, in fact, a single-seat air superiority fighter, but it's such a damn good design, so powerful, has got such a great wing, that they made the F-15E Strike Eagle, which is a two-seater ground attack aircraft version. And the and Boyd didn't want anything hanging on the F-16. He didn't want anything. And if you look at the if you look at the YF-16, the the prototype, it is significantly smaller and lighter, and sleeker than the production F-16. So they had some compromises, but but the F-16 and the you know, F-15 is undefeated, 172 to nothing, I think, if I remember correctly, or 112 to nothing, something like that. The F-16 is, is not only one of the best aircraft in the world today, but they've also made more of them than any other fighter aircraft in the MiG-21, so that's quality and quantity. So that's Boyd's story. So this guy is basically Boyd, and what he's basically saying is, listen, theoretically, yes, it is possible to detect us. Theoretically, if you put us into interstellar space, yes, we'll, we, we'll, we'll stand out. But inside the solar system, there are so many other objects that we can get as cold as, as long as we're not showing off, as long as we're not lighting up our, 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 our flares or anything like that you know, with our, with our thrusters and stuff, and as long as we direct the waste heat aft of the, of the ship away from the target ship within those strict confines and for a limited period of time, we can get a, a, sh- a ship that houses a crew, and we can get it down to 8 Kelvin. So there's more discussion. You know, when all the staff officers are saying they've tried this kind of thing before, it's, blah, blah, blah. Regan is there, and he's saying, well, would you need to build something like that? And he says, well, we'd want it small. It'd be a, a test bed. He said, yeah, I like that. We could use as many existing parts as possible, but, <coughs> Configuration would have to be completely different, and we'd have to we'd have to get into some exotic materials, and 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 at least line the the front face, the front aspect of it, just have to have a lot of cool stuff in there. And Regan says, "All right, how many do you think you need for the crew?" I, said, I don't know, tiny thing, six, seven, something like that. Okay, come talk to me afterwards. So they so they build the they build the Nautilus, and and the Nautilus actually works, and so. That gives the colonies a stealth advantage that the uh, that the Earth governments, the Chinese, the Russians, the the U.S. Space Force, whatever the U.S. has become, that they don't have. And then the technology that they use on Nautilus, they're going to adapt to bigger ships for the front-facing aspect only. This isn't a submarine. So in, in Star Trek, when they use the cloaking device, that thing just plain disappears. It's not visible. It's not. It's just gone. This isn't that. Uh, a submarine, a World War II sub, that's about to attack a convoy, is not undetectable. It's just undetected. Understand the, the difference there? Um, it's not undetectable. It's undetected. Now, Lord Pius brings up an interesting point here, and that is that is that you'd want to to lower the signature in terms of make it dark or whatever. Uh, if you're dealing with military-type sensors, which is what this thing is designed to go and kill, it's designed to kill military ships, you could, in fact, as part of the attack profile, you set up your initial vector, right? And you can't change that very much once it's out there. But you set up your initial vector, and you're, and you're just like a submarine. You're just creeping towards guys that are more or less staying in the same place. It's a ship or whatever, it's not going zoom around, you can't catch it. But if somebody's just resting there, you just kinda just start coming in, and you could actually deploy in front of it a screen. And the screen is in fact of uh, among many other things, it's transmitting images of the stars behind you so that you don't get you don't get occlusion problems. Right? So so the ship is not given away by um, by by its blocking of starlight with a military type sensor 200 years from now I'm sure they'd be looking for that as well but lots of things out there, millions billions billions and billions of things out there are in fact including stars all the time because there's all this asteroids and small asteroids, dust, all of that so as long as you stay in the ecliptic plane you're pretty much you're pretty much okay Um, so uh, the, the entire premise is designed from a writing point of view to give us, um, to give us that kind of, okay, well, we're badly outnumbered, but we've got the cool stuff. Uh, Johnny Pershing says, uh, John Pershing says, um... Need to come up with counter tactics, otherwise your opponents eventually just look stupid. There has to be a way to mitigate the advantage. There is, in fact, um, one of the things that you can do to to essentially make this stealth attack impossible is if you have a fairly wide sensor net, because as long as you're as long as you're presenting the aspect of this narrow narrow long ship, you're presenting the as- aspect towards the target, right? Whatever waste heat you're generating is going out the back, the reflectors to keep it from coming forward. You are generating waste heat. You're dumping the waste heat. It's just dumping it in the direction opposite of the sensors of the ship you're trying to attack. But once you start getting sensors throughout the solar system, then that waste heat will become visible to some other sensor platform. And so that will um, that'll, that'll you know, put the kibosh on that thing. And this is essentially becomes the same thing as either a destroyer net or, or like our SOSA system of underwater hydrophones yes you can mitigate against it but space is awful big and, and and so what you end up with i hope what it feels like is you end up with a balance right you end up with a, with a with a balance you end up with something that that evens the odds but doesn't give you a super power you don't want a superpower you want something that's enough of an advantage to make up for your enormous disadvantage in numbers. And you want this technology to be extremely difficult to pull off. So there's that aspect to it. And then it becomes much like aerodynamic stealth, airplane stealth, right? We put out the first stealth fighter, the F-117. So think of that as the Nautilus, right? Then you design something that's a lot more capable. In fact, it's the most capable jet ever built, the F-22. So the lessons you learn from the F-119, which wasn't even really a testbed. That was something called uh, uh, something blue. <coughs> they put a the, the predecessor to the F one nineteen. They put it on a pole out in in, in uh, Mojave Desert and beamed radar beams at it and just uh, something blue. was the name of the test bed? Um, half blue. Thank you. And um, and then they made the one nineteen, which you know was relatively stealthy, but as an airplane, it was garbage. Couldn't turn. Couldn't do anything. It's just but but you couldn't see it. And then by the time you get to the F twenty two, now you're beginning to incorporate stealth technology. Now, the Chinese have a, a today. The Chinese have a fighter called the um, J twenty, which is supposed to be stealth. It's the size of a bus, and the Russians have the uh, the Sukhoi fifty two called the Felon. Both of those are supposed to be uh, stealthy jets. I'm not convinced of either of them. Um, I'm not convinced. Uh, when I when 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 I see them in combat, I'll believe it. But right now, I don't believe that either one of those aircraft are particularly stealthy. They're stealthier than what they had before, but I don't think they're even close to the F one thirty five. I'm sorry, the F thirty five or the F twenty two. So when you've got when you've got an outnumbered bunch, look. I'm, th- this show is awful. Is, did I say fifty two? Sorry, Su fifty seven. So I'm talking about this from an entertainment point of view. It's not a military thing so much as it's as this episode is about how do you take science and make it into fiction without blowing the science out the window. So what you want is you want balance. You want drama because because drama is everything. If you don't have drama, then you got nothing. And this is why Mary Sue's are a problem. This is why, this is why um why ray skywalker is such a problem if you're invincible from out of the gate then nobody cares right if you can't be destroyed then it's like watching that ridiculous fight scene between superman and general zod was a 45 minutes of them knocking each other through buildings and smashing each other with railway locomotives They just get up and walk away it's boring that was the most boring fight i've seen in in movies actually that that giant super expensive thing between between those two guys it's like i was just like can, you know, it went over forty minutes. Oh, oh! Now he's going to hit him with a locomotive. Well, now he's going to hit him with a, you know, with a factory. I guess that'll show him. Uh, no. Um, so, um, in any event, uh, you want balance. So, this introduces an edge to the colonies that gives them a fighting chance against the far superior numbers of the enemy. Now. Once you show them that this can be done, once you launch a submarine attack, then everybody's going to want to build submarines. And once you had stealth jets, everybody wants to build stealth jets either. But the thing I'm trying to count on here is the U.S. had been researching stealth for 20 years prior to the F-117, and and by the time that you get to the, F-3, the F-22 and the B-2, you've got solid 20, 25 years of research and, and 600 billion dollars a year budget for every one of those years, right? So, what what you're hoping is is that you, you are presenting something that is so new that even though the enemy starts cracking on it right away, it's not even a question of can they build the ships yet? Do they have the technology to build these things? They'll immediately start doing something, but can they catch up? Well, so far they haven't, no. Nobody in the world's been able to touch the F-22. The airplane's 20 years old now. Um, so now Dave Big Booty says, "Yeah, but the commies just steal our stuff." Now that's actually interesting. Yes, that's exactly right. What happens when you've got a traitor in our in our awesome super colonies, which is our uh, Go America, right? We're the good guys, and and what you want to do as a writer is you want your your good guys to be infallible and perfect, and that's not. What makes drama interesting? So you got to give them flaws, and in this particular case, you give them a traitor like Benedict Arnold. You give them somebody who gives the bad guys most of the engineering stuff on this stealth. Um, but you 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 can keep. Whoops! Looks like we lost something here. We're still streaming. I think I might have lost the the recording. Hang on a minute. It recorded that. Let me just double check. Everybody hold that thought. Something. I just got a big error message there. What was it? I don't like the looks of that. OK. Well, it looks like um, I ran out of disk space, and it looks like the file didn't save. fortunately, we're streaming, so it should be available on YouTube. Um, so let's hope. Um, so that's that's the, the basics of it. Now, I want to get a little bit more into the... um into the thing now. So a number of people have been making comments which is um, which is what I want to hear yes this this could work for a very limited number of situations like decapitation strikes first classic example the classic example of all time and, I, and I'm just gonna steal this I'm gonna steal a lot from history I'm just gonna retell it verbatim I'm just gonna retell history verbatim but the one one of the most amazing stories in World War two was happened within the first few days of the war, when a German U-boat commander named Gunther Priem took his U-boat into the British Royal Navy harbor at Scapaflow. He took a boat into Scapaflow. It was limited access into this inland sea. And um, and all of those were were uh, blocked by submarine nets and um and and sunken ships. And they got a look at it with some aerial reconnaissance and preem decided he could probably work his U-boat around these wrecks, and he got inside of Scapa Flow, which is, by the way, it's 20 feet deep there, right? I mean, you, you, there's, there's essentially no submerging. He went in at nighttime, and he, and he got in there. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which side you're on, um, the, most of the Royal Navy had, had left Scapa Flow by the time Preen got in. So he went after the biggest thing he could find, which was a British training battleship, obsolete battleship called H.M.S. Royal Oak. Sent her to the bottom, and then Preen had to get out of there. Uh, but that, the 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 amount of skill necessary, he's literally warping the thing around the, these these sunken sunken hulks. He's 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 literally doing like full full you know left engine all the way, uh, reverse, you know, he's, he's just, he's just cranking this thing around, and somebody, I saw a picture once of, of, like, a little tiny bridge or something, it's just a tiny little thing, and, you, and, you, and he took his U-boat through there, and I just thought, my God, the guts on that guy, he, he was, many times, he thought he'd been detected because cars on the, on the side of the road had their, um, high beams on him. so, um, anyway, that kind of thing, is interesting and dramatic, because the thing about a sub is it has one defense only, and that is, it is its ability to escape detection, uh, which brings me to my next topic, which I've, I've often given a lot of thought to about the space combat thing for the colonies. <coughs> so during this briefing, uh, Boyd is basically going to say something to this effect. He says, uh, all right, uh, uh, gentlemen, let's, let's just review. Um, what was the dominant warship of the, of the pre World War I, pre World War II? And there'll be a lot of eye rolling and so on. Say, battleship. That's correct, sir. What was the dominant uh, weapons platform of World War II? It's the aircraft carrier, correct, sir. What was the dominant platform after World War II? It's a nuclear submarine, correct. Admiral, what do all three of those things have in common? What is it about these three platforms that made the previous one obsolete? And the Admiral's gonna get it in one. He's gonna say detection range. And that's gonna impress Boyd. He's gonna, yes sir, that's right. That's kind of like, that's really impressive sir. Yes, that's right, detection range. That's exactly what it is. All three of those weapons have the means to destroy their target question is, can they detect the target, and can they get into firing range? And so, the detection range of a battleship would be limited by where the horizon is at the very, very top of those tall masts. And those masts were up there for the for the uh, gunner platforms um, to to use their optics. But it's limited by the horizon. Hang on a second. First time chat from the Faster Blade. Terms of service are the legal agreements between the service provider and the person who wants to use that service. OK, I don't know what that has to do with, but anyway. Um, thank you. Um, so so a battleship essentially can see out to the horizon. That's why later battleships, uh, once the airplane became reasonably feasible, would have a couple of aircraft on the stern. They'd launch them off of a catapult, and then they'd just land in the water, and then they'd just winch them aboard. Those those seaplanes increased the detection the detection range of the battleship. They could they could tell you where an enemy was within a certain limit, right? So, for the sake of the argument, the battle the aircraft carrier that replaced it replaced the battleship because the detection range, the ability to detect enemies of an aircraft carrier, far far larger than it is of uh, um, a surface ship. And when I say detect enemy, I mean also detect them and avoid detection yourself, right? And then you get to a nuclear submarine, which has a very long-range detection level, but is also able to get very, very close without itself being detected. So the so the game is: who can get who has the lower signature so they can get in close enough for the first shot for the kill shot? And, and that's what makes the weapons platform obsolete. The the aircraft carrier. If the aircraft carrier had guns on it, 16 inch guns on it, instead of airplanes, and those guns reached out to two, three hundred miles with the same kind of accuracy that a dive bomber had, you wouldn't need the airplanes. But um, yes, detection range, Andrew DeLay says, and, and engagement range are two different things. And now we're, in, now we're back into the dance again, right? Yes, we've detected them, but do we, now, now we know where they are. Now we have to get close enough to engage them with our weapons. Can we get close enough to engage them with our weapons without them detecting us? Or, can we get close enough to get to them so that they can't run away from us? So all of this stuff is in play, um, but it makes it really, really interesting. Now, if you if you go with the um, the idea that stealth is essentially impossible, and essentially it is, I've been trying to think about this, and I what I'm left with is you kind of come back to the, the main weapon of a space-based warfare, you're, it kind of comes back to a vessel that looks and feels an awful lot like a battleship. In other words, since everything is visible, what you want is, you want range. You want to be able to reach out and hit somebody. That means range means power for energy weapons. It means power for the size of a gun. It means all of that stuff. So, so range generally means you want something big. And then you also want something that can run down the target because if you detect a ship and it's got more delta V than you do, then you can have all the range you want to. If he's able to get out of it a firing range, then you don't, then you don't get the kill. Now, this is where you get into that three-way battle between speed, armament, and armor, right? Which two do you want? You can't have all three, armor's heavy. And, and so if you've got a ship that's fast, You can have a fast ship that's heavily gunned but lightly armored. That's a British battlecruiser like HMS Hood, and that showed what happens when you don't have enough armor. The Hood just blew up. Bismarck fired on it, it blew up. So Hood had speed and Hood had firepower, but it did not have... Other ships would have a great deal of armor and a great deal of guns, but they didn't have any speed, which also made them vulnerable. I can't think of a case where something had... um, armor and speed, but no guns, because I guess it doesn't make sense, but you get the idea. Uh, from uh, Ma- Demaster12, D- Bill, have you ever seen the WH40K episode web series, uh, Warhammer 40K web series? If the Emperor had a text-to-speech device, I have seen it. It's the Astartes of fan-made 40K dark comedies. I have seen it. It's very, very funny. It's great. <coughs> a couple of those 40K fan f- fictions are, are are just astonishing. There's the one that takes place on a on a on a uh, demon uh, legion ship, that's just phenomenal. And then there's the other one where they're got these five guys who are trying to. Def- they look like they're um, knights, anyway. Uh, yeah, so forty k is awesome. So, so now you've got this this world where. So I'm just trying to think this through, right? You got these gigantic, huge battleships like that pagoda thing I showed you. It's it's. It's a Christmas tree. It doesn't care. Everything's lit up out there. So it doesn't matter how, how big the signature is if you can detect anything out there, right? If you've got, you got, you got an unshielded, uncooled ship at, and it's at 100, 150 Kelvin, you can see it anywhere in the solar system. You can see it in the next solar system. So it's no longer submarine things. It's no longer even battleships or aircraft carriers. Now you're talking about combat they said that sub-combat, truthfully enough, modern sub-combat is a game of hide-and-seek with bazookas. The weapons are fatal. All you have to do is hit it once, generally speaking. And so whoever can get that first shot off will kill the enemy. And it's quite conceivable that you get your shot off, they get your their shot off after you. You kill them, and then they kill you. So hide-and-seek with bazookas is a good way to put it. Blind Man's Bluff is a great book about that. But space is not like that. Space. And it's hard to visualize this. So, space is essentially imagine an enormous, a hugest warehouse ever. It's got a completely flat floor. Absolutely flat floor. And all of the players are wearing flashing strobe lights on their heads, right? That's what space combat is. You can see everybody all the time. You have the ability to use long range energy weapons that have the advantage of being able to go further, relatively instantaneous, but whose, whose damage falls off as the square of the distance. So, you know, they're, they're long range weapons, but they're not really kill shot weapons. Useful maybe dazzling the guy, blinding his sensors. You may get lucky on one of those hits. <coughs> you can send a missile. A missile will deliver a fatal kill on a warhead, but the missile is susceptible during its flight time. It's susceptible to point defense systems and all the rest of it. Then you've got things like uh, like uh, uh, mass drivers, uh, railguns, and railguns will put out a lethal shot, kinetic shot. You get hit with a railgun slug; that's the end of the game for you. But the 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 pellet, the 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 weapon, the actual the actual kinetic kill device, is still moving very, very slowly relative to the speed of light. So you have a chance to dodge those things. You see that thing fire, and you, you change your your position, chances are you're gonna be out of the way by the time the enemy gets there. So this is why stealth is important. It gets you inside the engagement range while remaining outside of their detection range. Um, so anyway, uh, that's uh, that's basically, you know, how it works. Um, so something's going on in the comments. I don't know what's going on over there, but in any event, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's kind of where uh, I think this thing would go. Um, and then the, there's a lot of a lot of talk, too, about are you above the plane or are you below the plane? And most people say, you know, well, space battles are always fought in a plane. True, and they don't have to be, but it's also true that Virtually all of the traffic in a solar system will be on the plane of the ecliptic because that's where the stuff is, right? All of the planets in our solar system and most all of the asteroids are on a relatively flat plane called the ecliptic. And you can get above or below the ecliptic, but there's not a whole lot up there. And if you're following my argument, that's kind of where you don't want to be because there's very little background. Um, it's not camouflage exactly. It's like clutter. It's like it's not jamming either. What am I trying to think of here? In a way, it's like camouflage, right? You get a really good camouflage pattern, and it's designed to make you invisible against the background. And that's basically what we're talking about. Um, so... Anyway, that's uh, that's my little rant about uh, spaceships uh, and in the colonies and and uh, sort of design um, uh, aesthetics. I do have um, an awful lot I have to do before I leave tonight. I know I say that all the time, but uh, I was going to take a couple questions, but to be perfectly honest with you, I'm thinking I might just not. Um, I've got uh, they submitted the second script. Uh, the the second rough cut of the um of the second cold war shoot i need to go over that and make notes and then um excuse me i have a bunch of other stuff that i need to get done too so while i would normally take questions tonight i think i'm going to pass because if i do i'm only going to get to one or two and and i i think right now i'm just going to have to just bail um Uh, That's a good question. P72017 says, hang on, are any two solar systems arranged on the same plane? By chance, several of them will be, but not by design. We already know from the way we detect exoplanets that essentially the, 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 the plane of other solar systems are completely random relative to ours. Even though they're all inside the galactic plane, as far as I know, the actual orbit plane is more or less completely random, and I think that's basically got something to do with how the um, how the initial uh, gas cloud collapses, and when that when that nebulae collapses into um, into the accretion disk that forms the solar system, it picks up uh, rotational angular momentum from from just the randomness where the most stuff is. So that's basically it, I think. <laughs> Excuse me, I sure hope that this thing is, Well, I know it's recorded on YouTube uh, But we'll we'll see if I can get that uh, up and over So, um, no questions Just tell us about the Gorn I'm curious, uh, John, my whole studio here is a Star Trek Museum And he was up against the wall that he's standing in front of uh, He's life-size Gorn And then over on that wall over there Is a life-size cutout of Kirk Looking over his shoulders He prepares the giant bamboo cannon So, that's pretty cool um, Cold War series is looking great I've got four episodes done on the, um, the new thing I'm doing for Daily Wire, Empire, Empire of Terror, and this may be the best writing I've done, uh, I really like it, uh, so, um, that's coming, and, uh, hopefully it'll make up for, you know, my, uh, absence and other things, because it has pretty much been full-time, but in any event, there's, there's that. So, um, yeah, so hopefully that helped, and uh, looking forward to hearing some comments about this next time or in the comments section below here at YouTube or wherever else you might be. Um, and uh, this show is made possible by the members at com who uh, have been sticking with us through Thick or Thin and um, who uh, who keep the lights on and allow me also to get into, um, you know, fun things like this, not just the, you know, the the day-to-day stuff they let me play around a little bit too so we're very grateful for all of that um so uh, that'll do it i'll have this up uh momentarily on the uh on our second channel which is stratosphere studios channel and i'll post it to our website as well okay i think uh uh, somebody lost a payload today mr tomes did did uh, one of the spacex rockets fail i don't know if that is what that was about now i'm like the edge of my seat here Uh, let's see well i guess i can look it up yes clear disk space exactly yeah Yeah. and it's i I gotta get some i'm gonna get an external solid state drive because i I shut down the uh the, the hard drives oh branson was he i don't know i don't know what's going on um Thank you guys very much. Anyway, I'll figure out something. Something happened. Virgin, Virgin lost something. <laughs> okay. Well, if you'd hired Bert to do it, it would have been done. Um, Twenty years ago. Ah, dick. So there you go. Um, all right, guys. Uh, thanks again for for everything, and um, and we will see you on Thursday right here for the Stratosphere Lounge.